Today's episode of Dead Rabbit Radio contains violent imagery and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. A cab driver traveling down a lonely dark road has a close encounter of the fist kind. And then we take a look at the story of a young man up against impossible odds. What would you do if all of a sudden police officers arrived at your house, knocked on your door, and then arrested you for a brutal murder you didn't commit? Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Gardner. I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. First off, let's give a shout out to our newest Patreon supporter coming into Dead Rabbit Command right now. Even though this is the one one of the rare episodes I give a content warning on, it's Liz. Everyone give a round of applause to Liz. She's looking around. She's like, oh man, this episode. Come on, Liz. Throw her arm around her shoulder. Come on into this disturbing episode. Liz, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, that's fine too. Just help spread the word about the show. Really, really helps out a lot. Liz, let's go ahead and get this party started. I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the Dead Rabbit Dirigible. We are leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. We are flying all the way down to Chile. Liz is flying us on over there. It's a nice, leisurely journey. We're headed back to the year 1999. It's June 19th. And we're near Pinco. It's a little town, apparently, in Chile. It's four in the morning. And while we're flying up high in this dirigible, there's a car driving the lonely dock road below us. And in this car is a cab driver. We don't have his name, so we're going to call him Jacob. So Jacob's driving this cab down this lonely, dark road near Pinco, Chile. And he sees something standing on the side of the road. It's off in the distance. It's standing on the side of the road. And even though it's night, 4 a.m., it's morning, technically, for all you space nerds out there. He sees this dark figure standing on the side of the road, but he can still make out the outline of this figure. And right where the eyes should be, there's two red glowing dots. A little spooky, right? And he notices as he's driving down the road, the figure is now walking towards the car. And he's like, dude, I'm out of here. Which is what he was doing anyways. The cab driver was headed to another destination. He wasn't going to have a picnic here. But when he sees the figure start walking towards his car, he just puts a pedal to the metal, baby. And he starts flying down the road. And just then, the shadowy figure leaps into the air. Jacob can't see it. He's like, oh man, if I had a convertible, I could see how high it was in the air. He's also thinking, if I had a convertible, I'm totally exposed to my brain getting ripped out by whatever this is. It like flies away. You're like, okay, that was chilling, right? A big black shape with piercing red eyes standing out in the middle of nowhere. It flies away. Like Mothman story, man bat. It'll be something I'll tell the... Before he can finish his sentence. The top of his cab... Goes, makes like a noise, doesn't have a horn, it's not a clown up there. It makes a noise like something landed on the roof of his car. And he's driving faster and faster, and he looks in his rearview mirror, and he sees the creature is now, this is, I'm not your older brother, this is not creepypasta. He sees the creature is holding onto the back of his car, he has a hook he has a hook and ah, he's caught this creature is climbing on the back of his car so it, like landed on the roof and then when he's gassing it the creature kind of fell off 
but grabbed onto the bumper and he's like climbing up and he can see when he looks in his rearview mirror, all he can see is this thing's face and forehead. It just looked like an outline. It still didn't look right. He freaks out. He looks straight ahead. He's driving. He looks back to see if it's there. It's completely gone. The figure is completely gone. But then later, and he just drives away. He doesn't stop to figure out what happened. He just drives. He's like, oh, I wonder what that horrible beast was that could fly and land on my car. I better stop and examine it. No, he does the smart thing. He drives away. But later, after he gets to his destination, he realizes something. <laughs> there's a hook. There's a there's a hook on his doorknob. No, I'm just joking. I don't know why I'm I don't know why I'm ruining this story. He notices something. He notices that his odometer shows that he traveled triple the distance he should have. So from where he was at to where he's at now, it was triple that. He could not explain in any way what could have caused that. This story I got from ThinkAboutItDocs.com. They got it from a group called UFOPR. But a really, really interesting story. First off, you do think it sounds like something that if somebody told you around a campfire, you'd be like, uh... As he has these horrible, brutal scars, and his car is completely trashed. He's like, why won't anyone believe me? There's giant, like, bloody claw marks on his car. If someone told you the story around a campfire, you'd be like, that's kind of spooky. But... Then you have this weird alien. Like, what caused the odometer to... Even in alien lore, you have lost time. I've never come across lost distance before. Like, sure, people have ended up in places where they didn't start off. They've been teleported. But the fact that the odometer was going showed that he wasn't teleported. The car wasn't teleported. Because if I put your car on a flatbed, your odometer doesn't keep working. It... That's such a weird part of this story. It's action-packed. Creatures flying around, landing on cars. That was that was all the action. But it is action-packed. But then what is up with the odometer reading? What could have possibly caused that? Traveling through an alternate dimension? Maybe? <laughs> Just off the top of my head? Who knows? I can't... I mean, there is no... I, hypnotized maybe the creature did get him maybe the creature got him and drove him around for a while and then just got, got out who knows it's one of those stories that at first it just sounds like a typical monster attack which we cover a lot on this show but then the ending detail how could the odometer be triple the distance that it should be i really don't even have a theory on it and I'm the king of theories. I'm the king of coming up with stuff. The only thing I can think of, the two theories that I guess I had was that he got possessed and the creature drove him around and did whatever. And then the second one is that he drove through an alternate universe. He's running over the Smurfs. He's running over the Smurfs for, you know, triple the distance and then the, the demon or whatever it was. Let's say, it was Gargamel. Gargamel possessed him. Who knows? Such a bizarre story. And I love it when we have this cross-section between run-of-the-mill monster stories and then something like this, something that seems out of this world. So, bizarre story. Really, really enjoyed reading it to you. Hope you enjoyed it as well. Liz, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the Carpenter Copter. We are leaving behind Chile. We are headed on out to... Abertillili, Wales. 
And as Liz is flying over the ocean, probably should announce this before we're over the Atlantic Ocean. This story does have some disturbing imagery in it. So if you don't want to hear it, I will see you tomorrow. You can jump out of the carpenter copter right now. We will give you an official parachute. And we will see you tomorrow. For the rest of you and Liz, who has to fly us the rest of this way, let's go to Abertilly, Wales. I, can't, I found out about this story from a person online going by the name of Jadwigo of Kaliz. And thank you very much. I never would have come across the story before. I find it absolutely fascinating. It's February 1921. We're in Abertilly, Wales. We're at the Abertilly Police Station. And there sits a young man, his name is Harold Jones, 16-year-old boy. He's being accused of one of the most horrific crimes you can be accused of. On February 5th, Frida Elsie Burnell walks into Mortimer's stores. They sell oil and seed. Super bizarre combination of stuff. I just can imagine like these barrels of black crude and then like sunflower seeds. But apparently these people bought stuff back in 1921. You'd be like, one barrel of oil, please. Maybe it's cooking oil. I don't know. But I didn't research any of that stuff. Frida, who's eight years old, was hanging out at home and her dad said, hey, Frida, you want to earn a penny? Because like in 1921, she's like, I could buy my own oil with that penny. You want to earn a penny? Why don't you run down to Mortimer's stores? I want you to pick me up some poultry spice and some grit. So at 9 a.m., she runs down to Mortimer's stores to buy the poultry spice and grit. And when she gets there about 9.05 a.m., Harold Jones is working out the store. He's working the counter. And he does prepare the poultry spice for her. And he goes, well, here's the thing. I have loose poultry grit, but I don't have just poultry grit. Which one do you want? And Frida thinks about it for a bit, and she goes, I don't know. I don't even know what grit is. I don't even know what grit is used for. Let me go home and ask my dad. I'll be right back. And she leaves. It's later in the afternoon. Way later in the afternoon. Police begin showing up at the store. And they start asking Harold, Hey, the little girl come in here? Little, little girl, Frida, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, Frida came in. She, she came in really early. Really early? How, how early? I don't know. Like, right after 9, she showed up and she bought some poultry spice and some grit. Do you, do you know what grit is? And the officers are like, we don't know what it is either. He goes, yeah, and I said, we you know, we have these different types of grit, but we didn't have this one in stock. So she left. Police officers are like, okay. And they're kind of taking down his information, talking to him. What had happened was she never returned home. And by 3 p.m., the family reported her to the police. The police began scouring the area, and part of that trail was taking them to Mortimer's stores. But the girl's still missing. Harold Jones is thinking, well, okay, you know, I'm just selling stuff, right? I didn't do anything. The next day, only 300 yards from the store, a sack is found. And inside the sack is the body of 8-year-old Frida. After the body's examined, this is what they're able to discover. She died of a combination of blunt force trauma and strangulation with a cord. And that cord was still wrapped around her neck when her body was stuffed inside of the sack. She had been gagged. Her elbows were tied behind her back. And her ankles were knotted together. There are also signs that before she was murdered, the assailant attempted to rape her. 
there was two clues that the cops were really looking at with this. One, they were able to say the time of death was between 9.30 a.m. and 1 p.m. February 5th, the previous day. And on her body and in the bag and around the bag was corn chaff. And just a couple hundred yards from where the sack was discovered, there was a chicken run. They find like this storage shed, this area, and the area is full of corn chaff. And in the shed there was an axe handle, and they believe that was the murder weapon. Now there's only a few people who have a key to that shed. The Mortimer family, who owned the store, and Harold Jones. And he is adamant, I did not do this. I didn't do it. And the cops, they don't have any physical evidence that he did it. But they got a hell of a lot of circumstantial evidence. He was there, right? That's a big part of it if he was in Peru. He was there. His friend said, you know, he was acting kind of weird that day. I remember we wanted to go, like, down the alleyway to go to the shed. And he's like, no, 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 I'll, I'll... They had to get something out of the shed. He's like, no, no, I'll do it, I'll do it. And he's like, shh, be quiet. That was a piece of the evidence. The cops go, oh, maybe he brutally murdered this girl and tried to rape her. He's like, I didn't do it. His own family said, listen, during the key times that this crime would have taken place, he was home by then. And his boss said, he, listen, he was out making deliveries. Early in the morning, he couldn't have done this. So even though his own behavior seemed a little weird and sometimes he would contradict himself, he's a 16-year-old boy, he's contradicting himself during police interrogation, even though he has an alibi, his family and the owners of the shop are saying, no, he wouldn't have been here for the times that you think this would have happened. The police arrest him. The only thing more terrifying of being accused of a crime you did commit is being accused of a crime you didn't commit. I mean, obviously, the most terrifying thing is being the victim of a crime. But if you commit a crime, you know what you did. And any good criminal has an alibi. And if you know what you did, if you have your, if you have your alibi, and it's a solid alibi, you can coast that for as long as it'll take you. Keep that alibi going. But let's say that I break into a couple cars. And the police arrest me, and they start trying to bluff me. Because police will lie, police will bluff, they're allowed to do that. They will cheat, they'll do whatever. Everything you say can and will be used against you. None of it's going to be used in your defense. What you say to the police can and will be used against you. It's an adversary. When you commit a crime, it is an adversarial relationship with the police. So you got to be aware of that. But anyways... Let's say I'm breaking in with a series of cars. And the police suspect that it's me. And <laughs> it is me. I know that it's me. They think that it's me. And they try to bluff me. And they say, listen, we have your fingerprints at the scene of the crime. We know that it's you. And I know full well I've worn gloves every single time. I'll go, I don't understand what you're talking about. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Sir, we have your DNA. Well, that's funny because I'm a silica-based alien. I have no what you call DNA. If you did it, you know what you did. So when the cops are trying to bluff you, you know it's a bluff. This happened. This happened. I remember when I worked at Best Buy a long time ago. We caught all these kids, all these employees, these really young employees, stealing out of the electronics department. It was a ring. One guy was stealing Dreamcast games and selling them on the sly. And his, his, his defense was that he was a kleptomaniac. He couldn't help it. 
And they always had this rule at Best Buy. I don't think they have I don't think they have this anymore. They always said if we catch a shoplifter, if we catch an employee shoplifting, we're gonna make him walk the track. There's always that yellow line that kind of goes around the inside of Best Buy. And they caught this dude. It was Dream Games selling Dreamcast games. They made him walk the track. He ended up not only not going to jail because his defense lawyer said that he was a kleptomaniac, he couldn't help it. He sued Best Buy and won for humiliation. But also, so that, that in and of itself is just a bizarre story. But at the same time, there were like these five or six kids, these dudes, these like they were like 18, 19 years old, stealing stuff out of the electronics department. The way they caught them, the way they broke the back of this group, because they were real slick. You never would catch them, but the way they broke the back of this group is this is what happened. I remember being, because I was in management at the time, I remember being told about all this. They brought one of the kids into the security room, and in the room was one of the department managers and a police officer. And the department manager goes, listen, we know that you're stealing stuff. Just confess. And he's like, I'm not stealing anything. He goes, we know you're stealing stuff. You have to confess to us. Tell us you're stealing stuff. And he's like, I'm not stealing. I didn't steal anything. He was adamant. He didn't steal anything. Then the department manager had a, again, this very, very old story, had a VHS tape, blank tape, and said, listen, this, on this tape, is security footage of you stealing. We have security footage of you stealing on this tape. Now, if I play this tape and this officer sees you commit a crime, he has a legal obligation to arrest you and take you to jail right now. So I'm going to put this tape in the VCR and I'm going to hit play. And if it shows you stealing, you will go to jail. He goes, do you want me to put this tape in the VCR? And the kid looks looks at the cop. The cop actually pulled his handcuffs off and started kind of playing with them. And the kid goes, me and my friends have been stealing stuff. We've been stealing stuff. There was nothing on that videotape. It was a blank tape. But they bluffed him. They bluffed him. And they had no proof that they were actually other than stuff was disappearing. And these guys were working completely circumstantial. But when you've committed the crime, you know what to fight against. This kid, he was a young dude. Of course he was going to get bluffed by the cops. By a department manager of Best Buy even. But... If you didn't commit the crime, you, you, there's no defense other than I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And you can say it over and over and over again. If someone came to your place of business or your home or your school and a police officer accused you of breaking into a shop and stealing somebody's bicycle, you'd be like, what in the world are you <laughs> riding away on a brand new bicycle listening to this podcast? You'd go, what in the world are you talking about? Well, where were you such and such time? I don't know. Or even worse, I was at home by myself. And cops look at each other. And they're like, well, that's not a really good alibi. Well, check the online logs, dude. I had the best kill streak in Team Fortress 2 at the time. You, there's no defense other than I didn't do it. And that is so much harder to fight against. If you've committed the crime, you know what you've done. You know what the house layout's like. You know what the scene is like when you left it. So you can push back against stuff. But if you didn't do it, and it's so much easier to get tripped up when you didn't do it. Because they'll just start asking, where were you? Do you know this person? I don't know. I mean, maybe I know that person. The name slightly sounds familiar. They write down they know the person. Everything you say can and will be used against you. The best thing to do is just to get a lawyer. But anyway, so we're talking 1921 in Britain here. 
And Harold Jones is being accused of this crime, and he is adamant. I didn't commit it. I didn't do this. And you can only say that so many times, and you're going to start getting tripped up in your testimony. You're going to start getting tired. He did have one thing going for him, though. The people in town didn't have faith in this arrest. They actually thought the cops arrested him because it was a brutal crime, and they needed to close it really quickly. But they were like, how could a 16-year-old kid do this? We don't believe that this he's capable of it. He, there's no evidence. It's all circumstantial evidence. So the people in town actually were behind him. Now we move ahead to June 21st, 1921. We're in Monmouth, Wales. That's where the trial begins. Now, during the investigation, when he's flabbergasted, they're even accusing him of this, he said some stuff to contradict himself, which anyone can do. But when he's on the stand, he's super cool. He's super collected. He actually, under very, very strong cross-examining, the prosecutor's asking him questions, he holds up. Because Harold Jones is like, listen, I'm telling the truth. You tell the truth, hopefully the jury will figure it out. Prosecutors make their case. The defense makes their case. Jury comes back with a ruling. Not guilty. Not guilty. And you hear that verdict. Not guilty. Finally, after all these months of being accused of this heinous crime, he gets his validation from a bunch of people he doesn't even know, this jury. And he has a little private party at a local restaurant, and he gets up on the table and gives a little... It's a victory lap, really, right? Like, how terrifying that would be for us to be in that position. When he's headed back to town, when he gets to Abertilly, there's actually, like, a miniature parade for this guy. Because no one in town really believed that he could have done this. So they put him in a, like, a horse carriage, because they still had those back then that was state-of-the-art, and he's, like, riding through the street, and people, people want the real murderer found. Like, now it's the next part of the investigation. We'll get to that in a second. But I wanted to cover this story with Harold Jones and him being accused of this particular crime. Because we get to see what happens when someone is accused of something. They say they didn't do it. People, they have no proof that this person did it. And the police still try to run him through the legal system. And I wanted to examine that. As he's coming down on this little parade in this open horse carriage, this little kid runs up to him. It's like something out of a movie. This little kid named George Little runs up to him and goes, this is an actual quote. I don't know if the reporter heard this, but this is an actual quote. Well done, lad. We knew you didn't do it. Apparently he's also a leprechaun. But George Little is saying, you know, like, we, you're back home. Let's try to get things back to normal. But, you know, it's funny because you... How do you go back to normal for being accused of a murder like that? Of just a horrible murder of a child. How would you go back to normal? People are kind of treat him like a celebrity. And, he, and people treat him as, as a victim as well. So there's really two victims to the story. You have Frida, and then you have Harold going through this whole process. So people did kind of have a... They, they, it was just a weird way they viewed him. So July 8th, this is only, I think, maybe two two weeks after he got out of jail. He'd have been in jail the whole time. On July 8th, Florence Little, 11-year-old girl, she's actually George's sister, the guy who gave the little speech at the end of that movie. She's playing hopscotch with her little sister outside the house, and they're neighbors to Harold Jones. So the Jones family and the Little family, they know each other very, very well. They're just out. Her and her sister are out playing hopscotch on this day. And Harold pops out of his house, comes out, and is chatting up the kids a bit and stuff like that. They're talking. 
And again, you have to imagine they're thinking this dude, like what a horrible thing to go through. He was in jail and now he's out. He goes, hey, Florence, can you come inside? I need help with something. Florence goes, yeah, sure. So she stops playing hopscotch. She walks inside the house with Harold and they are briefly in the house when he gets her in a chokehold and begins to strangle the life out of this girl. She can't scream and he begins dragging her through the house to the kitchen. There he had waiting a plank of wood and he began bashing her over the head. He grabs a handful of her hair and holds her over the kitchen sink. The angle's not quite right yet. He begins to push her head farther over the sink. He then pulls out his father's pocket knife, slides it into her throat, and slits her wide open. She quickly bleeds out while her little sister is still waiting outside for another round of hopscotch. He cleans up the scene as best as he can. He actually does a really good job cleaning up the scene. He drags her body upstairs, hides it in the attic, and takes a bath. It doesn't take long for the little sister to realize her older sister, Florence, is missing. She goes home, she tells her mom. Her mom starts panicking, looking for her, because there's a murderer on the loose. Just no one believed that it was really Harold Jones when it was Harold Jones all along. So you have to imagine that mother's fear as she's walking up to the Joneses' house. It, it couldn't be him. It couldn't be him. But at the same time, where's her daughter? She knocks on the door and she said it takes a couple of minutes for Harold to answer it. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. It took me so long. I was up taking a bath. And she goes, have you seen Florence? And he goes, well, yeah, you know, she came over to help me run an errand, but then she ran away. She just ran off into the woods. The mom and other neighbors keep looking for Florence, but it's not, I don't know why they waited so long. It's not until 11.15 that the police are notified that Florence is missing. They begin doing a house-to-house -house search. And I almost feel, because of the public outcry over the Harold Jones arrest, they wait. They're literally neighbors. But it's not until the next day that they search his house. They go in the kitchen. They don't see anything weird. They're looking around the house. Harold's dad is there, Philip Jones. It's in the house as well. He, the cops are like, can we search it? He's like, yeah, sure, you know. It's not like he just put my son through hell for the past couple of months. He didn't do it. We told you he didn't do it. But anything can help this missing girl. As the police are looking around, they see the little like doorknob to the attic. You know, that little um, thing that you pull down. The ladder comes down like in the movies. One police officer looked up and it looked like blood that someone had tried cleaning off. That's something only a police officer would recognize. Like most people will recognize blood. Some people will recognize dried blood, but blood that's been cleaned off, that's someone who's seen that a lot. The police officer goes, I think we should check the attic. And they went up there, and sure enough, she was up there, she was sprawled across the rafters, and her clothes were partially removed. Philip Jones is incensed at this. Obviously, it's horrifying that he has this dead girl in his apartment. He feels that tragedy. But you have to know that in this moment, he knew his son had committed the first murder. He actually then goes through town, 
finds his own son and performs a citizen arrest on him until the police show up. He denies it. He denies it. And the dad's like, that's not going to work this time. But it works with the city of Abertilly. They take him, they throw him in jail. 500 people show up outside the police station. Not as like a vigilante mob. They were saying, release him. Once again, you're trying to put this poor boy, you, you, you're you mad because you lost the first trial. You're trying to trump us some charges. And the police chief came out and said, listen, this is totally different. We found her in his house, in his attic. His own dad arrested him. Go home. He's guilty. He denied it. He denied it. And then while he was awaiting trial, he wrote this. Quote, I, Harold Jones, do confess that I willfully and deliberately murdered Florence Irene Little on July 8th, causing her to die without preparation to meet her God. The reason for doing so? Being a desire to kill. Unquote. At first, he said, I didn't kill the first girl. But it was so cool being in the spotlight and having everyone pay attention to me that I killed the second girl. But then after about a month, he goes, ah, just kidding. I killed the first girl, too, for the same reason. I just want to know what it was like to kill somebody. I had a desire to take a life. Two murders of two young girls. One attempted rape. The other one partially unclothed. So there was most likely some sort of sexual motive going on as well. There's no trial this time. He goes straight to jail. But, remember, he's only 16 years old. The maximum he can serve is 20 years. By 1941, remember, we're way in the future. We can chart his path. By 1941, he was out. He was out when he was about 35 years old, and he went and joined the Merchant Navy during World War II. After the war, he got married, had a kid himself. It was 1971 when he finally passed away as an old man. Died of bone cancer. But that's not where the story of Harold Jones ends, actually. Because oddly enough, they think that he murdered way more than just these two girls. He's been linked to the murders of at least six other women between the year 1964 and 1965. There was a murderer known as Jack the Stripper who would club women, choke them, and undress them. To this day, nobody knows who Jack the Stripper actually was. But some people believe it was Harold Jones indulging in a sick fetish once again. An eerily bizarre story about a justice system that gets it wrong. About a boy who commits a crime that's so unspeakable, the people in town don't believe he could do it. And then he does it again. A creepy true crime story that just reminds us of a very simple, but sometimes forgotten fact. It's not always the creature hanging on the back of your car as you speed down a dark road that you need to be most concerned about. It's the person sitting next to you. It's the friendly smile and wave as you're driving down the road. It's the nice boy at the grocery store or the friendly barista at your local Starbucks. What madness, what evil lies in the people we see every day? 
And when we find out that these people that camouflage themselves in society so well, when we find out their true nature, will it be when we read about them in the newspaper? Or will we know of their true nature when we are a victim of theirs? When the rock hits across the top of our head? When the knife plunges into our ribcage? When the gunshot pierces our lung? At that point, it's too late for us. But hopefully the next person will be able to see through the disguise of the monster who hides in plain sight. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day. I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Thank you.